0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, the second part of our two-parter on Ned Kelly. Uh, So if you're just jumping in this week and joining us, welcome. By all means, welcome, but uh, all the piss-poor timing of an English batsman, I have to say, because, uh, yeah, you're going to want to go back and listen to uh, to part one, otherwise you have no idea what we're going to be talking about for the, most of this. But for those of you who have come along for the ride so far, great to have you along for another episode here, and let's get stuck into... Uh, uh, where we left things off with Ned Kelly uh, after the Stringybark Murders, of course, in 1878. We heard all about the early life of Ned Kelly last week, along with some of the other stuff that he got up to, uh, that culminated in, in him fleeing from the law in, uh, in 1878. He was what's known as a bush ranger. and uh, sort of b- before c- continuing that story, let's have a chat about exactly what that phrase means, because it may not be something that you know a lot of people outside of Australia have, have come across. As you probably already know, Australia was settled as a penal colony. For blokes, the British didn't want nicking bread or sheep or whatever back in the mother country. Uh, a lot of Australians are descended from convicts. I'm a descendant of a convict myself. One of my ancestors was nicking sheep in the Midlands in England and, uh, and got sent over as a result. Where it was, uh, was sentenced to transportation. Um, but between between 1788 and 1868, when the last uh, convict ship arrived in, uh, in WA... Almost 165,000 convicts were transported to Australia. Most of them were sentenced to seven years of hard labour and then could either settle or return to the UK. And most of them, as they had, you know, a, a, a working brain in their head opted to settle in the greatest place on earth and uh, that was you know one of the reasons that australia's uh, one of the, the the foundations of of australia's growing european population was of course uh, you know uh, this 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 convicts resettlement but also on top of that there was the gold rush which we talked about red kelly being a part of uh, before giving birth to his son ned in 1854 but uh, I have to say this as well: a lot of the convicts who were sentenced to seven years, uh, they didn't even bother with it. They didn't bother with the whole seven years business, and they just managed to escape, hiding from the law in the bush. So the first bush rangers were, were essentially escaped convicts. These blokes, uh, the, the, the term bush ranger has been seen as early as 1820, and bush rangers usually lived a, a life of crime, forming gangs, robbing other blokes, doing that sort of stuff. And it's odd. It's it's a little it's a little funny because today these robbers, murderers, and, and rapists are romanticised and admired by many, you know, in Australia as being Aussie heroes, despite some of them being, you know, the worst criminals that you've ever seen. But any way you slice it, these bush rangers helped to give, uh, I guess helped to develop a sense of, of Australian nationalism, as they were seen to be, you know, sticking it to the man by being outlaws, and uh, even today in right, we absolutely love that sort of stuff, absolutely love that sort of stuff, get one up the man, oh, we love that sort of stuff, you know, and I guess it's it's very similar, there are parallels there with, you know, the, the the western frontier in the United States, and and the outlaws, the cowboys, and that sort of thing, so, you know, everyone loves that kind of story, but they are kind of glorified a little bit for what they were, which were, you know, horrendous criminals. Anyway. By the time uh, that, uh, you know, Ned had, had well and truly given into this this life of crime and become become a proper bushranger, a proper outlaw in 1878 with his uh, his brother Daniel, uh, transportation of convicts had, had definitely ended. You know, it, it finished 10 years before, but the term bushranger was nonetheless still around. Anyway... Ned's off hiding in the bushes, in the bushes? Not that specific. He's just hiding in the bush, I guess. Not well, let's not be too specific about where exactly where he's hiding. Anyway, he's hiding with his brother, Dan, and again, these two other blokes that make up the rest of the Kelly gang, Stephen Hart and Joe Byrne. Now, they're not having a great time uh, when it comes to the law, of course, because of the Felons Apprehension Act that was passed that, that enabled anyone to shoot these blokes dead as soon as they saw them without a trial or anything else like that. But uh, they don't care too much, to be honest. They don't care too much about that. They're too busy having a great time planning the big bank robberies that they're going to have a crack at in, uh, in the coming months. Now, on the 9th of December in 1878, this is a couple of months after, well, what, just uh, about a month and a half after the, uh, the Felon Apprehension Act has been passed, Ned and, and uh, these three mates of his, they rock up in Faithful Creek, just outside Euroa, where there's a wool station uh, called, and we're back to kind of stupid names here, just, uh, just very briefly, wool station called Gurum Gurum Gong Wool Station. Anyway, the gang, they stride into this homestead of the station and uh, where there's a group of station's hand, uh, station hands having their lunch. Now, Neddy rolls up on them and says, G'day, you blokes, Ned Kelly here, famous bush ranger. What's going on? Uh, don't worry, not going to shoot any of you bastards. Uh, we just want cop a copper feed. Have you got any tucker for us? Now, one of the fellas who works at the station, uh, this, bla- this brass ball bloke named Fitzgerald, he gives Ned the old up and down, ignores his big revolver and says, well, mate, if you and your mob are hungry, park your ass down here and uh, we can uh, we can get you some tucker. So Ned and his mates, they have their lunch and then uh, lock all of them all of the men up in a nearby storehouse. So this was not exactly, you know, I mean, I don't know what you're expecting when Ned Kelly comes over for lunch uninvited, but uh, being locked up, I think you're getting, you know, you, you, you're getting away not quite scot-free, but you're doing pretty well for yourself anyway. Um, Ned, uh, as I say, lock up, they lock up all the men in the, in the nearby storehouse, leaving the, uh, leaving the women alone. Now, Ned, a bit of a gentleman, uh, gentleman outlaw here, because he reiterates that none of them have anything to worry about. They all just need to chill out and relax and not cause a fuss. If no one does anything, you know, no one makes any trouble for anyone, everyone's going to be, everyone's going to be fine. Um, now later on in the evening, so Ned obviously the, Ned and his gang have, have sort of settled in here after locking all the blokes up. Uh, later on the evening, a hawker whose name is Gloucester rocks up with his wagon loaded with all sorts of stuff that he's trying to flog. Now Gloucester, not knowing what's happened in the homestead, he goes inside after parking his wagon, and one of the workers says to him, "Mate, who's locked up?" He says, "Mate, carefully you go there because uh, Ned Kelly, the bloody bush ranger, is inside. So just just be you know just be bloody careful, mate." And Gloucester turns and says. Pig's ass he is, mate. I bloody wish he were because then there'd be that'd be 200 that that'd be two thousand pounds in my pocket. There's a huge reward out for this fella. Now Ned looks up sharply at this. He he overhears what Gloucester says and uh, and says, uh, "Hang on, hang on, mate. What's this about? What's this about two grand? What's about two thousand pounds for Ned Kelly?" And Gloucester turns to him, recognizes who he is, sees the look in his eye and uh, realizes he is not mucking about, and so he starts to leg it. He just turns around and runs. Very wise move there from Gloucester. uh, Legs it out to his wagon, where he starts to fumble for his revolver. Now, Ned and his gang, they follow him out and point their guns at him and say, Steady on, steady on there, my friend. You better change your, uh, your tune, quick, bloody smart, or I will burn this wagon to the ground. Now, Gloucester thinks better of his plan, and so gives himself up to the gang, who lock him up in the storeroom with everyone else, and then go through the stuff in his wagon. Ned and his mates, they pick out a few suits that they like the look of because obviously they're going to a bank tomorrow, they want to look presentable. doesn't matter if you're trying to rob it or do whatever you do, you've got to go to a bank looking presentable, you've got to be you know, got to be all smart, let's pick and span. Um, now, what's interesting about this interaction is after having stolen these suits, you know which is what they did, they took it out of the wagon without permission, they then go up to Gloucester and say... Hey, old son, look, sorry about locking up, pointing our guns at you. We did take these suits. We do like them a lot. We are going to keep them, but uh, do you want some money for them? They actually offer to pay him for them uh, once they've got the got themselves all teased up. At Gloucester, he refuses the money. He doesn't He doesn't take any cash off them there. Anyway, that's about that for the evening. The prisoners are kept in the storeroom overnight. And when the next day comes, after having you know, had a bit of a sleep, the, uh, the Kelly gang, they get up and about and ready for some action. Now, the first thing they do is they go and t- uh, cut the telegraph wires and then chop down the posts that are holding them up. Uh, probably would have been easy to do that in the other direction, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, uh, they then go to the manager of the station, a bloke named Macaulay, and say, "Listen here, old son, we're off to rob the bank in Euroa, and you're going to help us unless you want to get very intimately acquainted with the barrel of this revolver here." And at gunpoint, they forced Macaulay to write out a check, so it would seem like they had a legitimate reason to enter the bank. They didn't just want to walk in; they they want to, you know, want to slip in through, you know, past the radar there with with you know a, a plausible pretext for entering the bank. Now Macaulay uh, he does this, uh, and he's also he's also told that they're going to leave one bloke behind to guard the hostages. And uh, if if any of them play any silly buggers, then all of uh, you know when they return, they would burn down the whole station and shoot all their horses. So again, do not muck about. Don't cross Ned Kelly, and you'll be fine. So, three of them head off towards the bank uh, after it's closed, but before the clerk has gone home for the night. Very deliberate timing there. They didn't want the bank to be open, but they still wanted it to be staffed. So, Ned knocks on the door, waves the cheque around to get the clerk to let him in. Uh, you know, good. he's a good bloke at this stage. Every time I've gone to the bank when it's been closed, they just ignore me. You know, they're looking away from the window, trying to ignore me, trying to pretend they haven't seen me. But this bloke's like, okay, yeah, he needs to get his cheque in, no worries. Now, this, uh, you know, a very nice fellow, but he's also a bit of a clothier buffoon because he's just let Ned Kelly into a bank. He opens the door and the gang whip out their revolvers and hold up both the clerk and his manager, whose name was Scott. They empty out the bank's drawers. They get £700 for themselves in cash, gold and silver, but they are not happy with that. Not enough for them. Ned turns to the manager and says, Listen here, Scotty, old son. I know you've got more cash here. You can't bloody fool me, mate. Open up that there safe and we're going to have a squeeze inside of it, shall we? Scott is forced to open up the safe and sure enough there is another 1500 pounds in cash as well as another 700 pounds or so in gold and silver. So the Kellys have made an absolute bag here but what's amazing about this whole exchange is that it was said it was said to be super super polite. Ned was reported to being to to have been really uh, p- pleasant diplomatic and civil uh very gentlemanly the whole time so much so hey get, get, get a load of this so much so that scott actually invites he and his mates to have a drink of whiskey with him before they set off which ned actually does imagine that they've just robbed the bank and now they're sitting there in enjoying a, a glass of bloody sullivan's cove together having a great time anyway they end up bringing uh, up, uh, they bring They bring, uh, Scotty back to Gurum Gurum Gong as another hostage where they find that everything has stayed more or less peaceful. So they seem to have got away with it at this stage. Uh, uh, Ned says, mate, look, I am dying for a feed. Let's get some Tucker into us. How about it? Now, Macaulay, the station manager, says to him, what are you doing, mate? You've just robbed a bank. The cops could be here any, any minute. You better actually, you know, make tracks before they come along. And Ned, who obviously gives absolutely, he doesn't, he doesn't care at all. He does not give a crap. He says... And this is a direct quote, by the way. This is a direct quote. This is not me making stuff up, like I usually do with the, you know, with people saying stuff. This is a direct quote. Ned says, "I wish they would, for there is plenty of cover here." So you can tell he is he is ornery and, and, and wanting to shoot some cops. Anyway, there they are. The Kelly gang and their hostages sitting down to have dinner together before finally, about half past eight, Ned and his mates jump on their horses and they finally head off. Before too much longer, they're they're back at it again. After the uh, you know after this enormously successful bank robbery in Euroa, they've decided they're gonna they're gonna hit another bank here. And so on the tenth of February, after having snuck across the Murray River in into New South Wales, Ned and his ga- uh, gang rob another bank. This time in Jirrallery. Now, uh, much like the robbery in Euroa, the gang they took hostages, kept them under armed guard. But again, Ned is said to have treated everyone there with politeness and respect, with the exception, of course, of the policeman, who he obviously can't stand and ends up locking in their own cells, just to add insult to injury there to these coppers. Anyway, the Kelly gang, they emptied the bank of over 2,000 pounds, and while Nita's rifling through the safe, he finds a deed box full of mortgage documents. Now, This'll, this all this is this is another interesting wrinkle to the story of Ned Kelly because it's very easy you know we talk about him being an outlaw you know being a nasty boy murdering and and, and robbing people whatever else but after having come across this uh, this this box of mortgage deeds do you know what he does to it he sets it on fire he burns all of the mortgage uh, you know all of the the mortgage documents there to try to create losses for the banks by destroying their debt records now obviously this doesn't work because the, you know the banks they're not that stupid they've got other copies of all of these records but you know it's it, i guess it's just like you know that stupid ugly jumper you get from your auntie at christmas it is the thought that counts ned he was really really trying to stick it to the man and that, again that's one of the reasons that he's sort of idolized by a lot of people uh, even today in australia anyway the killer gang—they ride out of jewelry with their pockets jingling and uh, huge, big grins on all their faces. But after this string of hugely audacious robberies, the governments really start to turn up the heat. Now, the New South Wales government is also offering a reward uh, of four thousand pounds for Ned and his gang, which is then matched by the Victorian government. So they've got an eight thousand pound bounty on their heads, which is equivalent—just to put things in perspective—sorry, eight thousand pounds in in you know the mid to late nineteenth century was one and a half million dollars this was this was not mickey mouse money this was an enormous sum sum here of you know that was on the head of the heads of these uh, of, this, of this kelly gang here but they were not mucking around one and a half million bucks anyway as a result as a result of this enormous heat you know you're playing grand theft Auto. you're up to you up to five stars nearly six the army's about to be called in so they decide to uh, they decide to you go to ground And they fall off the face of the earth from March eighteen seventy nine to June eighteen eighty. They are laying low, enjoying their riches, and are spending about you know a year or just over a year there, uh, you know, as quiet as a mouse. During this time. There are police patrols scouring regional Victoria, you know, going through old haunts and hideouts, interrogating people who, you know, might have known where they were, all that sort of stuff, looking for Ned and his mates. But they don't find a single thing. There are a lot of theories about what the Kellys were doing at this stage. Uh, you know, about the, perhaps he left Victoria altogether, and uh, Ned. In, in, it, it's established, you know, it, it's firm fact that Ned did discuss the idea of escaping to Queensland but it's thought that nothing really came of it. We're not exactly sure. Anyway, on top of all this, Ned's sisters even make inquiries with a ship's captain about transporting four or five gentlemen friends across the Pacific to California. So, you know, there's definitely evidence to suggest that they were trying to get out of there, but they don't, obviously, because we all know how the story ends in Glen Rowan. However, now... It's 1880. The Felons' Apprehension Act has lapsed, meaning that the arrest warrants for Stephen Hart and Joe Byrne have expired. And so the heat has kind of come off a little bit. Ned and Dan still have active warrants for killing Fitzpatrick, the cop who had hassled the Kellys at their homestead in 1878. Uh, But the fact that the act has lapsed means that the gang isn't outlawed anymore, and they've got a little bit more breathing room than they did before. Now, as a result, Ned starts to put together his next move. At this stage, he's known around the colonies as an outlaw and as a bush ranger, so he can't get up to the same sort of stuff that he did previously, you know, with the impunity of of anonymity. Defying all orthodox thinking, therefore, he decides to knock off the bank in Benalla, the town in which the cops that have been hunting for him are headquartered. You know, so I guess it's the sort of, you know, the, the... will hit you where you least expect it type place. They're going to come right to the, you know, the beating heart of this police investigation. It seemed like a crazy plan, you know, but this is, this is his idea. He'd take some cops uh, hostage outside the town, use them to lure as many of them as possible via rail down to Glen Rowan, just outside Benalla, and there he'd set himself up for a big blue with them and kill or capture as many of them as he could before, you know, then going and hitting Benalla. They get underway in June of 1880. Firstly, they murder a police informant named Aaron Sherritt and hold his, uh, his police guard hostage overnight. And after that, they ride to Glenrowan, where they force some railway workers to sabotage the track by ripping up the sleepers. This means that any police train with reinforcements would get wrecked on its way to Glenrowan. This is very important. The Kelly Gang arrive at Glenrowan in the early morning of, uh, of the 27th of June and round up the entire population of the town, which is, in fairness, only 62 people, but still, round them all up, and no one resists these four blokes on their horses. They all look terrifying, uh, because I probably should mention this, at this stage, not only have they got revolvers waving around and, you know, what have you, that sort of stuff, they're all now wearing the iconic armour that Ned Kelly is still known for, you know, that big suit of armour with the sort of the letterbox type helmet thing. Uh, It's a big, big, thick, heavy plates of metal uh, with helmets as well. And uh, all in all, if if you'll believe this, this armour weighs 44 kilograms, around about 80 pounds, a very, very heavy thing to be walking around in, very hot and heavy, Uh, even though it's the middle of winter, of course, Australian winter still still gets nice and warm. Um, Anyway, these 60 or so townsfolk, they're all bunged up in the hotel with the gang. Now, by all accounts, it ends up being a bit of a party at the hotel. The people there they're actually having a pretty good time there with Ned. Uh believe it or not, because uh Ned insists that the landlord pours out drinks for all the hostages and gets some musicians to strike up a tune. So generally, people are getting on the source, having a bit of a dance and a sing, and 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 pretty much everyone's just having a great time, big party, you know. But at, at well, I was going to say Ned's not shouting it, like you know, he's not shouting the bar or anything, but he's sort of forcing the, you know, he's not paying with money, he's paying with, you know, the threat of Violence, but still, still counts. Again, thought that counts. So uh, Dan, Joe and Steve, they all get a fair few jars into them and, and they get pretty sloshed actually, but Ned, he, uh, he plays it safe and he stays sober. That's not to say he's not having a good time with the crowd. He's getting amongst it and one, one study, you at know, one point he's actually, he's, doing, he's dancing, he's jigging around the floor with, with revolvers in, in, in both hands. Anyway, as the evening wears on, uh, things calm down a little bit and the hostages, uh, you know as, as happy as they might've been with, with Ned, they're, they're still hostages, uh, start to settle down to sleep. Now, Ned knew that the cops would definitely be on their way after the murder of the police informant and the you know the general ruckus that he'd been raising. And he was absolutely right, because two special trains were barrelling along the tracks towards Rowan, full of police reinforcements. Now, Ned had planned for this, obviously, by destroying the railway track near Beechworth, but his plan didn't end up working out. Because a school teacher named Thomas Kurnow had managed to get away from the hotel. He managed to escape during all of the debauchery. And about three in the morning, he hears the oncoming trains. Now, very bravely, he races out onto the tracks with a candle and a scarf and somehow manages to get the, get the attention of the engineers who were able to stop the trains before they reached the destroyed part of the track. Kurnow then told the cops about what had happened in Glen Rowan and how the whole town is being held hostage at the hotel. So Ned has lost the element of surprise here. The cops, as a result, they, guess, they get off the train and they creep up to the town and approach the hotel. And this is when Joe Byrne sees what's going on, raises the alarm and the siege of Glen Rowan has begun. The gang rush to put on their armour and take up their positions on the veranda of the hotel when the cops start shooting at them. Smoke quickly fills the entire area as the cops and the gang keep shooting, shooting, shooting at each other and the police spread out to try to encircle the hotel but the gang continue to fire at them as the siege continues, uh, you know, suppressing them and keeping them in their place. Now this siege continues until daybreak. With shots continuing to be fired both into and out of the hotel, which again, don't forget, is still full of hostages, the hotel here. A few things change, a couple of things happen when the sun starts to come up. Firstly, there are 30 new cops that have arrived as reinforcements from Beechworth, Benalla and Wangaratta, and they all take up positions around the hotel. And as they do, they find a rifle and a hat, both soaked in blood, lying some distance from the hotel. They start to think that one of the gang has escaped from the hotel and they're proved right pretty bloody quickly. Because out of the smoke, from the trees behind where the cops are positioned, Ned Kelly emerges, outfitted in his armour, revolver in hand, looming out of the smoke like a phantom and starts blasting at every cop he can see. This terrifying apparition doesn't seem to be affected by the bullets the cops are blasting right back at him either because, of course, he's wearing this thick plate armour that's preventing him from the worst of the bullets. Now, eventually, a clever sergeant by the name of Steele realises how stupid it is to try to shoot him through the armour that Ned's wearing, and so he starts to aim at his legs. Steele lays Ned low in two shots. He falls to the ground, roaring in pain, but continued to fire at any of the cops that approached him. But eventually, of course, poor old Ned succumbs to the pain and the blood loss and the police were able to capture him. They find that he's been shot six or seven times, but not a single bullet managed to get through his armour. He's dragged off to the railway station and seen to by a doctor, while the siege of the hotel actually continued for quite some time because the other three the other three blokes are still in there. Joe Byrne ends up being shot while necking some whiskey at the bar at about half past five. Uh, Even better, he is shot uh, right in the dick and uh, dies of blood loss the next day. Uh, And at 10 o'clock, about half the hostages actually emerge from the hotel and are safely taken away. But Dan and Stephen are still stopping the cops from getting near the hotel by continuing to shoot anyone who approached. And as a result, the police, check this out, send for a cannon to be sent up from Melbourne so they could blow the hotel to kingdom come. Now, despite the cannon arriving about 2 o'clock on the express train there, rather boringly, unfortunately, it's never used, so never mind. Instead, the police decide just to burn down the hotel now that more or less all of the hostages have escaped and it's just the two outlaws inside. Now, as the hotel starts burning, a bloke named Matthew Gibney runs in to see what had happened to Stephen and Dan and finds them lying next to each other. He reports that based on how they were lying, it looked like they'd killed themselves, but this was never conclusively proven. And, you know, in the huge hail fire of bullets, it, you know, we may we may never know the uh, the exact truth of how it worked out. In any case, the hotel is reduced to smoking cinders, the siege of Rowan is over and the Kelly gang has come to an end. Dan, Steve and Joe are all dead and Ned has been shot half to death and is now in the hands of the police. Ned remains in police custody and actually manages to survive the the pretty serious wounds that he received in Glenrowan. He's moved to the old Melbourne jail, uh, which, which now that I think about it was probably not called that back then. It was probably just the Melbourne jail. It might even be the new Melbourne jail because, you know, we are going back a fair way here to the 1870s or 1880s, I should say. And in October 1880, just a few months after the siege of Glenrowan, his trial begins. Uh, but not before, of course, a fair bit of public sympathy has arisen for this bloke, uh, believe it or not. Then and now, Australians are just, we are just all about this kind of bloke. Ned was a murdering, bank-robbing criminal, but the big, stiff middle finger that this bloke just, you know, kept giving to those in charge is the sort of thing that really gets us up and about as a country, I reckon. We just love this sort of stuff. And in any case, back in 1880, there was still a fair bit of general unhappiness about the way that uh, the police kind of conducted themselves in general in enforcing the law. In some cases, they were seen as tyrannical or, and unjust, and, and Ned kind of highlighted this somewhat. I'm not, I'm not trying to take anything away from you know, the, the crimes that Ned committed, but definitely you know there were definitely shades of grey in terms of how the police were doing their job as well. Anyway, Ned's trial uh, starts on the 19th of October in 1880, presided over by a judge whose name is Sir Redmond Barry. Uh, and where he's list uh, he, and he reads off a, a list of charges, again, as long as your arm. He's charged with, amongst amongst other stuff, he's charged with the murder of four police officers, the robberies of all the banks, and uh, and, and rather hilariously, what was titled resisting arrest for what he did in Glen Rowan, just to put it mildly. Certainly one way to put it there. Anyway, Ned doesn't read through any of the evidence that was given to him, and he doesn't really bother to examine the witnesses either, saying say, <laughs> saying that he thought it would uh, look like bravado and flashness. So, you know, he didn't want to seem like he had tickets on himself here doing that sort of thing. The police, on the other hand, cross-examine a huge number of witnesses and rather, obviously, the case against Ned is is more or less a foregone conclusion. When the jury find him guilty, uh, the judge uh, commented that Ned must have expected it and uh, Ned says to him, uh, yes, mate, I did, uh, but I tell you what, I would have bloody got off if I'd wanted to because these bastard cops, they've strung me up good and proper and uh, but, you know, if I'd asked these witnesses a question or two, oh, but, you know, whatever, I don't give too much of a crap about this, whatever, it doesn't matter too much. He then goes on to argue with the judge who, in fairness, is being pretty level-headed about it all and says that even though he's going to be put to death, he says his mind, and this is a direct quote, his mind is as easy as the mind of any man in this world. And when the judge officially announces the sentence and says, May God have mercy on your soul, Ned, of course, uh, had to have the last word. And uh, he looked at the judge and says, I'll go a little further than that. And I will say, I will see you there where I go. So, Sir Redmond ended up dying, if you believe this, 12 days after Ned is executed. So, this guy was, he was, you know, he, he said some very spooky things every now and again. But as it is, Ned has been sentenced to death by hanging and the date is set for the 11th of November. Before this date, Ned is allowed to see his remaining family members where his mum Ellen tells him, mind you, die like a Kelly. And on the appointed date, Ned is led out to the scaffold and he doesn't fight, he doesn't struggle. He pauses only to say, what a nice little garden as they walk by a flower bed. There are differing accounts as to exactly what Ned's last words were the most famous version, of course, is such is life. But other newspapers reported that he had said, ah, well, I suppose it has come to this, or even that he just said nothing at all while the noose was placed around his neck. In any case, the trapdoor opens and Ned plunges to his death. And so ended the life of a murdering, bank robbing Australian folk hero. And after his death, he was buried in, a, in the yard behind the prison But in 2013, only a couple of years ago, Ned finally got his wish and was buried in an unmarked grave alongside his old mum. His armour and some of his weaponry are still on display in Victoria. You can go and visit them at the State Library. You can also go to the Old Melbourne Jail as well and see a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, not just the stuff to do with Ned Kelly. It's a, it's a great place to visit if you're ever in Melbourne. I recommend it very highly. And if you ever get, get out to Glen Rowan, it's a beautiful little town in, in central Victoria. There's, uh, there's a lot of stuff to do there with Ned Kelly. They've got an old-timey cinema and a, and a, bunch, a really, really nice uh, nice place, Dad and Dave, to sit down and, uh, and have some, uh, you know, some uh, scones and jam and cream and a, and a cup of tea. But uh, on the other side of the railway tracks, you can, uh, you can go and visit the place where the Glenrowan, uh, the Siege of Rowan took place. Obviously, the hotel isn't there anymore, but there's a, there's a really wonderful uh, exhibit and a display with figures, uh, sort of statues put up where the cops were, where the Kellys were, and uh, it's a really, really fantastic place to visit. Rowan's only still a very small town. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to, to go and have a look at if you're ever in central Victoria. I do recommend it very highly. But... Uh, there are a few more little footnotes here, just to close out the story of of Ned Kelly back in back in the nineteenth century, because you know there were some repercussions as a result of Ned Kelly's death. The Victoria Police, after this, was subject to a royal commission, and they were forced to clean up their act, good and proper. Uh, with a lot of the top brass actually getting the axe uh, as a result of you know the investigation into the general conduct of the Victoria Police, but. There's there's a wider historical context here as well. We're not going to go into this too much, but it is important to point out here that the death of Ned Kelly, it really was something of a turning point in the history of Victoria and, and indeed Australia here, because federation and nationhood were only two decades away and the Kelly gang were the very last, the very, very last of the old colonial bush rangers. But it was just the beginning. Even though this was a huge transition point away from the old colonial way of life and that sort of thing for the European settlers in Australia at the time, a movement towards you know the, the federation and the birth of a new nation of a unified Australia here. Even though this transition point took place at this point, it was just the beginning of the mythology that surrounded Ned Kelly. And I have to say, despite the fact that he was a murderous criminal, there's a lot about what he said and did that still resonates with Australians even today. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Ned Kelly, the famous bush, the last of the bush rangers. A very, a very important piece of Australian history. There, a little bit of trivia as well. I forgot to mention, um, the first ever full-length feature film ever made ever in the history in, in, in human history was an Australian film about the kelly gang it's it's, it's an interesting little thing we, we got there first hollywood may have got there last but we got there first anyway uh that's that i do hope you got something out of this i'd love to do some more australian history in the future so i may i may very well come back to uh, to topics like these in the future we will see anyway i'm gonna close out this episode of course as we always do with all the boring housekeeping stuff half history.net got a patreon got a twitter at half history without an o wouldn't fit very annoying you can uh, follow follow us there and see the stuff that i tweet out after doing my little little reading every week um and what else of course i need to remind you that half history at gmail.com is the best way to get in touch with the show thanks so much to the, everyone who sent me in emails and of course i've still got plenty of stickers to send to you if you send me through your address i'll send you a couple of stickers for free no worries at all thank you for just being part of the show and listening it is really really nice to have people sending me feedback and commenting on twitter and what have you about enjoying the show or not enjoying it i mean if you don't like it good it, it tells me that i need to do a better job so thank you my, thank you so much for all of the feedback good or bad anyway that is that. Going to close out the show, of course, with another question from Reddit. This time it's a scientist question. Sci- uh, a, a question posed by Reddit scientist Bodie 91 And another, another question to do with Australia, of course, as we've been chatting about Australia so much over the last couple of weeks. When do aeroplanes flip over when they fly to Australia?